Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. I thought that we began this day with praise to you and continue in this time in our hour of worship with thanksgiving and praying that you will pour out upon us the goodness and the mercy that only can come from you. We thank you even in times of distress that you are there to minister to our needs. We thank you that you send friends and loved ones our way in those times. They might be the the instrument, the means that you have selected to minister to us in need. Lord, as we look now into your word and bring the message that you have prepared for today, may your spirit be around us and bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read two verses of scripture from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to stop at the end of verse 2. And you're going to find that rather strange, I think. But maybe you won't before the message is over. It's a passage that we don't ever use. Never preached from it in my life. I don't know if anybody else ever has, at least that I have heard, a rather strange way maybe to approach today's message. Paul and Timothy, or Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul felt uh, very close to the church of Philippi, closer probably than any other congregation that he had ministered to, for they were a very sensitive people who responded to his needs. That really makes a church, a body of people who are that sensitive and interested in and concerned for the welfare are those who are in need. And I believe very earnestly and sincerely that in our times of greatest need that God sends somebody, a friend to a friend. This was not the general thrust that I intended to make this message when I prepared it, I started preparing it uh, a good while ago, several weeks ago, but I got up at six this morning and uh, looked at it again and did some changes that I think the Lord wants to use this morning. You know, I, uh, somebody asked me, uh, uh, well, Pauline asked me a little while ago, how was your week? Let me tell you how my week was. It wasn't a very good week. The first thing that I went to Martinsburg, as most of you know, for a week-long conference. The conference itself was all right, but uh, 
Immediately upon getting to my room, I had two telephone calls from here about the tragedy. And uh, all the deliberation uh, in trying to decide what to do about coming back and after talking to Hadley and Betty and they both insisted that I not come back and decided not to do so. Uh, the rest of the week went pretty good. Except I can tell you one funny thing that happened to me that I didn't find too funny at the time. I decided to leave the motel where the conference was late at night and go over to my motel, which was a couple of miles away. Not knowing the building, I decided to take a shortcut and go to my car. And so I went out an exit door to discover that I had entered the pool area that was surrounded by a high fence totally enclosed, and so, well, I, I made a mistake here, and I went back to the door, and it was locked. <laughs> I mean, I was locked in to the pool area, in a dark area, at 10 o'clock at night, and no way to get out. And I thought, what am I going to do? Uh, I guess I'll just have to sit here all night. I couldn't figure out how. I finally climbed over the fence, and there were security guards around. I, I'm going to get arrested for sure. That guy's going to see me climb, I was going to explain, well, I was climbing out, not climbing in. I had my story already made up and explained to him, but I just made a mistake. Well, that was, I laughed about that after it was over. It wasn't too funny at the time. To think I was going to spend the night in an outdoor pool surrounded by an eight-foot-high fence, and I didn't know if I'd climb that fence, but I guarantee you I did. And so, but... Um, some of you don't know, but on the way back, I pulled off of Bridgeport to uh, make reservations at a motel for next month's Western Baptist Convention Conference, which will be held in Bridgeport. And while stopped at the light, my automobile caught on fire, and it's in Bridgeport with a burned-up motor. And I was bemoaning that fact when uh, two guys who were in the conference who lived in Charleston decided they would get off at that exit and have a cup of coffee. And uh, so I, I had some friends who stayed with me and uh, then brought me ahead to trust. I never carry a fire extinguisher in my automobile, never have. But I decided that I would get the one out of the building at home and bring it and put on the bus when we were working on the bus. When I got here, there was already a fire extinguisher on the bus, so I slid it under the seat of my pickup. And there it was. So I remembered that on the spur of the moment and got the fire extinguisher out and put out the fire twice. But uh, uh, all of those things happened. But you know, I, I got to think about, goodness sakes, I lost my mobile, which I just canceled the, that kind of insurance two days before. So I don't have any, anything uh, from insurance. And you might bemoan that fact, but there's a couple of things that, that the Lord put in my mind. Number one, hey, I put that fire extinguisher under your seat. It had not been there. The automobile would have burned up. That would have been incidental. But I was extremely concerned about all that traffic that I had backed up and was surrounding me. I didn't know what might happen there. And so that didn't happen. And then two friends came along. And one said to me after I got in the car about the comment of the other, he said, Jim, Charlie said the Lord pulled us off at this intersection. I believe he did. You know, a simple little thing. 
But it fits well into the friend-to-friend concept that I want to talk about. Paul is talking to a church. And he calls himself in this conversation a servant of Jesus Christ. Now if you go back and look at all of the other writings of Paul, there's one or two places that he identifies himself as a servant, but for the most part he calls himself an apostle, which is an official position. I think he used the term servant here to get down to being uh, able to talk to this church on a very personal basis about his relationship to Jesus Christ, what he really feels, and how that relates to, to his ministry. Now, he calls himself a servant, but if you take that word servant and get its root, which in the Greek is doulos, you find the word doulos means slave. He wasn't saying that he was simply somebody who had decided to serve the Lord. He is saying, I am a person who is in bondage to the Lord. That's how he identifies himself. A slave is one who is a, uh, in the possession of another. Uh, Paul referred to this in 1 Corinthians when he said to them, What? Know ye not? And I'm going to shorten it up. That ye are not your own, that you are bought with a price. You see, we don't belong to us. I'm not my own man. You're not your own person. You don't belong to you if you are a Christian. You have voluntarily committed yourself, body, soul, and spirit, to Jesus Christ. You're a slave. That's what Paul identifies himself as being. He says two things, I think, in that context. He lays down the fact that he is in the absolute possession of Christ. We often go through this process saying, this is mine, that's mine, I bought it. All right. If we belong to Christ, we were bought with a price, the price of his blood, then he owns us, body, soul, and spirit. We have no more claim upon ourselves because we are his He bought us and paid for us and we belong to Him and consequently it would seem that He can do with us as He pleases. Since we belong to Him, we are His, but we can't stop there. Jesus Christ did not buy us to own us. He bought us to set us free. Now back in the slave days, if you were translating your mind at that time, when slaves would stand on the auction block, oftentimes totally naked and bound, you cannot imagine a slave with a smile on his face and looking up and enjoying the experience, but being very downcast and distraught and humiliated, standing there, bound and naked, and somebody buying him or her. <coughs> Paying a price. And they have lost 
all of their will and it has been given to the new master. But even in those slave days there was a kind Christian man who would come along and find there this slave and pay the price and take that slave off the auction block and put clothes upon that slave and take off the shackles and hand him a piece of paper and said, I have set you free. And the slave would hear and look at his master almost in disbelief that he had found somebody so kind who would pay the price and turn him loose, take the shackles off, clothe him, and say you're free. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He took us out of bondage of sin and set us absolutely free. He paid the price and had the right to own, but he said, I will not do it in that terminology. I will buy you in order that you might be free from the shackles, from the burden, from the slavery of sin. And we're free. And Paul said to Galatians in chapter 5, Stand therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again in the bondage or the yoke of bondage, he says. I am never, uh, I never watch some of the nature programs without when they take an animal or a bird who has been confined well, let's take, for example, a, a, an eagle that has been wounded and somebody takes it into confinement and, and nurses it back to life and they have a shackle around its leg and, and they go out into the woods and take the shackle off and throw the bird free and he soars off on his own, completely free now to do as he wants, thanks to the one who nursed him back to health. Or that episode when an animal is caught in a trap and he's totally bound by that experience and some kind person comes along and unsnaps the trap and sets the animal free or opens the door to the cage and allows him to go on his own. This is what Jesus Christ did for us. And Paul says, I am his slave. But he set me free from the bondage of my former slavery. Throughout the Old Testament, the peoples of the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua and David and, and many others, are described as the servants of God. I think there is no more beautiful picture of any person than to describe that individual as a servant or a slave, if you will, to God. Some of you have been to Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson. I believe that's in Charlottesville, if I recall. I remember on one occasion when I was there, hearing the story as to how, during those slave days, that Thomas Jefferson was loved so much by his slaves that often, down at the bottom of the hill, 
they would unhitch the horse from his carriage, and his slaves would pick up the carriage uh, and put themselves in the harness and pull Thomas Jefferson up to the mansion just to prove their love for him. That's the description of a person who is a slave to Jesus Christ, who serves him so willingly that we'll pick up the shafts of the carriage to show our devotion. Another word that we need to look at is the word saints. He calls the people to whom he is writing saints. Now the Greek is the word hagios. I had a Greek class one time, remember a little Greek. It means holy. Now he is not talking about the people in Philippi being holy in terms of perfect, but it carries the idea of being different, of someone who is set apart, who has a, an image of distinction. It's referred to by and the priests as that in Leviticus as they shall be holy to the God, to God. That is set apart, have a different purpose in life. The tithe is to be made holy to the Lord. That which we give on Sunday morning, whether you tithe or don't tithe, what you bring is holy. That it is, it is set aside, it is given in devotion to God. It's not a means of simply paying the bills of this church. We don't have a whole lot of money in our treasury, and we need more. We're doing less than we ought to do because we don't have as much money as we ought. But when you give it, you don't give to simply pay the bills. You give it in devotion to God. It becomes a holy means, a holy substance that God takes and blesses because you and I have given out of our hearts gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. The tithe shall be holy. The temple, he says, will be a holy place. The Jews were to be a holy nation, but they uh, abdicated that position. And God has turned his attention to the church, and we are asked and required to be a holy people. Again, not holy in terms of being perfect or sinless, nor holy in that we are better than somebody else. We don't take the holier-than-thou attitude, although sometimes we're criticized uh, that way. And the people outside the church somebody, sometimes refer to us as you're holier-than-thou, carrying the connotation that we think we're better. No, we don't think we're better. As a matter of fact, if we were honest in our thinking as we ought to be, we'd probably think we're even worse than as Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's the attitude we need to take. That we're not perfect, we're not good, we're not moral, we're not upright. We are sinners, but we're sinners saved by grace. That makes us holy. That means we have been set aside. We have a, a, an entirely different approach to life. That's what we're talking about. When Paul said to the Corinthians, come ye out from among them and be ye separate, he wasn't meaning be separate in terms that we ought not to associate with somebody else. And there are Christian people and even churches who believe that they cannot associate with somebody. They've got to be separate. 
Whereas this, there's something better about them than all the other peoples of the world. Listen, we need to mingle in the midst of sinners in order that we might influence them for God. But we're different in that we have different goals, we have different objectives, different directions. But mainly because we follow a different drummer. The person who beats out the step, the march that we march in, is Jesus Christ himself. And as he beats the drum, so do we march. He's different. His manner of beating that drum speaks of a different step than the rest of the world. And in that terms, we're different. What makes us different? Well, the scripture talks about being in Christ. As a matter of fact, the New Testament speaks 48 times of being in Christ Jesus. That term, in Christ Jesus, is 48 times. In Christ is 34 times. In the Lord is 50 times. That totals up to 132 times that the scripture says to be in Christ. What does it mean? It carries the same idea as a bird who is in the air. That is, he is totally surrounded by the air of fish in the water. We are in Christ in that we are in and he is totally around us. It's completely surrounded. That's being in Christ. We're always conscious then that we are encircled by his presence we are in his element. As we are in the air or in the water, we are in Christ, completely influenced by it. That's the people he's talking to. And then he uses two words, grace and peace. I had just gotten to Martinsburg the other day when I had two phone calls letting me know of the tragedy that had taken place. And one of those people cried <clears throat> with the question, how much more can we stand? That stuck in my mind because it was a dynamic statement. And I had to say to myself, I don't know how much more I can stand. We go through this. The thing, of course, that Hadley's experience caused me was immediate reflection to my own loss a year ago. And it will never go away. How much more can we stand? I've been in the pastorate for ever since I was 20 years old, so that's 37 years. And I have gone through with families as, of the church as well as my own personal traumas over and over and over and over. And I admit to you that there are days that I am absolutely drained and don't know if I can take another phone call. Don't know if another tragedy is possible without something snapping or breaking. Then I 
had the episode of the automobile, which is nothing, but when I got home, well, Cricket to tell me that the doctor told her he thinks there's something wrong with her liver. And I don't know. What can we tolerate and stand? And then I have to realize that there is something, and I did realize this the other night, there is something that comes from God and encircles us and gives us the capability of living even in the midst of tragedy. <coughs> I had to preach this up to me pretty hard to get myself to believe it. I know it's true, but to accept it. Because the terms grace and Peace carry the idea of joy and pleasure and beauty. Grace talks about the love of God. Peace talks about a calmness in the heart. Peace is not just an absence of trouble. That's what we want. We just don't want trouble. We want to say, God, provide me no more trouble, put up a shield, never have another tragedy come my way, never another loss, never another heartache, another sorrow, and we know that we're being impractical when we ask for that, because life says they will come, and what God says is, I'm not going to shield you from those things, but I am going to give you my grace, so that you can be sustained in your time of need. That's what God's love does. He didn't take the pain away from Christ on the cross. He simply made it possible for him to be obedient to his will because his love was so great for me and for you that he'd do anything to see that we had something in our heart and soul. And I thought as I worked on this ending, this sermon of that great hymn. It was written in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But a preacher lost two daughters and a wife in a storm. And he went out on board that ship on a return trip. And he wrote that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. God does not isolate us nor insulate us from the tragedies of life. But Paul said it well, that we are the servants of God, set aside and devoted to his work, and God will provide us, not insulation, but provide us grace, making it capable for us to go on even when there are these tremendous tragedies that come in our life. And how does he do it? He sends people to Paul like the Philippian church. He sent you all to me. I hope he sent me to you. He sent you to each other to be his voice in his arms of love, to be his grace. Knowing that even in the midst of tragedy and trouble, 
we can endure because he sent a friend to friend. Tired of me. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.